welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Good morning, 11 o'clock. How are we? I like you guys. Don't tell 9 a.m. You are my favorite service. Uh, Last week, we had Tim Chaddock here. You guys enjoy my friend Tim. Some of you went to reality. He's awesome. All right, we're in a series called, let's look at it, uh, the book of James. And we're going through this Bible, uh, this passage in the Bible, or this book in the Bible. Lord, get me through this sermon. Um, And it's one of those sermons that, again, it preaches itself. But it's also something that can be very confusing for a lot of us. And I know what happened in the first service, so we'll see what happens in this one. But I just want to create space first to read the scripture together. And then we're going we're gonna to pray. And then I'm going to teach through the text. And then we're going we're gonna to do ministry time. And then we're all going to go have fun and hang out, do whatever you guys do after this. I'm going to go surf across the street. I can do what I want today. It's Father's Day. I'm going to go surf. <laughs> Let's go. Hopefully there is surf, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to get in the water. Have, uh, let's go to James chapter 2. <clears throat> James chapter 2, verse 14. Let me see those Bibles. Pull them out. Let me just give you, I see you. I see you. I'm connected. Put that away, sir. That's not a Bible. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're good. No, no shame for the iPhone um, or the Android, whatever it was. James chapter 2. Here we go. Verse 14. I'm going to read this text. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It's cool. It's cool. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Father, (laughs) we need your grace today. We need your power to do what we can't do on our own strength. 
Jesus, give us your revelation to know your word. Holy Spirit, would you empower us with a fresh encounter and experience with your word to not be distracted, to not be um, convinced by the lies of religion or the lies of the devil. Help us to not walk in shame, but be convicted by your spirit to bear fruit for a word that's received, as James says, to be doers of the word. So we bless you as a church, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm just saying this now, just to get out of the way. If you have little ones, they're more than happy to be in here. We also have a parent room where this is live feed. I'm just letting you know. Happy to have the kids in here. Christianity has this dangerous idea. And if you read this passage, you might be confused because it's one of the more controversial texts in all of the scriptures, which we'll talk about why it's controversial. We'll talk about the challenges and perhaps even what feels like a contradiction. But Christianity has this dangerous idea, this scandalous idea that says the ungodly people who believe in Jesus will be justified before God. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, what it teaches is that God loves you as you are, not as you should be, without condition or performance. You are not accepted based on your capacity to do anything. You are accepted by God's work in you through Christ on the cross. Faith that saves you is found in Jesus. Jesus saves you not because you perform for him, but because of his character and what he did in human history on the cross. Are you guys with me? But James asks this question, can faith, that kind of faith save them? He says, someone claims to have faith. But then he says, but can that kind of faith, essentially, can that version of it save them? Another controversy today is we believe as Christians all people need to be saved. Now hear me out. Because you're like, wait, yeah, that, maybe don't, this doesn't make sense. We live in a moment of time where most people are like, I'm good. In fact, the greatest evidence against Jesus is the church. The greatest reason to not believe in the message of Christ is the church. It's what, what Gandhi said. I would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. So we live in this moment where, one, we can save ourselves with effort, discipline, energy. We can, um, we can uh, do hard work and things and be able to get closer to God. It's all good. I got you. We had, father's holding his baby on Father's Day. This is great. If my kids were in this service, they would be interrupting, asking me to open their juice box. So we live in a moment where we, 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 it's controversial to say you, can, you need to be saved, right? Because we, we believe in our culture and society like you can do enough to be a good person. 
Your yoga practice will make you better. Your meditation will make you more mindful. Your therapist will heal your trauma. We have, we have something for everything. Technology expands life. We have AI now that's going to dismiss and displace all other forms of information in a way that's absolutely bonkers to me. It's the end. <laughs> uh, it's been the end since Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost happened. That's the beginning. But it's getting closer. Lord Jesus, come back. What kind of faith saves you? We talked about this a couple weeks ago when I talked about what James is referring to. Now, I don't want you to hear this text and get it wrong because it seems contradictory. Like, there's, I'm going to skip ahead real quick. It seems contradictory because James says some things um, that Paul says the other way. So let's just jump to Romans. I'm going to come back to this idea. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Here's what Paul says. Look, now, have this in mind. For uh, We're going to contrast these passages in Romans to these passages in James. Romans 3, 28 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Yeah, that's what we hear. Romans 4, verse 1, it's, or verse 2, it says, If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But then James in verse 24 of chapter 2 says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So you see there's contradiction here in the Bible. Great argument against the Bible. (laughs) What's going on? Now, before I talk about Paul and James, I just need you to know James is not writing a theological treaty of arguing new stuff like he was, like Paul writes in Romans. He's writing to a group of Christians that have been Christians for a while, spread throughout Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and perhaps the Roman Empire. And he's writing to Christians who, have, who claim to have faith, and he's confronting specific issues. That's one thing. But he's also writing from a perspective of wisdom and living out your faith practically. He's writing from that perspective. And he's also writing from the, the primary teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and Proverbs, but specifically the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus around the kingdom. And mainly this idea that you'll see over and over again in the book of James is that uh, the way we live out our faith is to, is to live out the greatest commandment which we know is what? To love the Lord your God with all... Smile and soul strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I got it, yeah. I heard you. I know what you were feeling. I know what your intention was. So I always try to convince my wife. It wasn't my intention. <laughs> Just know my intention. I said this, but I intended this. That passage, we, we try to make it like, oh, I'm going to love God in my little quiet time devotion with my, my scented candle and my like really thick leather Bible or my reading app or my utmost for his highest or the five-minute Jesus calling devotion, whatever it is. Like it's this way. But what you have to understand is there's no such thing as loving God without loving other people and yourself. In other words, there's a direct connection between love for God and love for others. So you have to know that you can't divorce the two. Are you guys good with that? So so James is going to move on and say, look, look, there's no such thing as a theoretical philosophical concept for faith. 
Faith doesn't exist in your mind. He's going to say this over and over again. You're going to get sick of it. And I want you to get sick of it because I want you to understand what he means by faith. Faith cannot be a concept that exists here. Jesus is not a concept. He's a person. Jesus is not some idea or mythological narrative. The cross is not some myth. It's a literal fact in history. Jesus literally lived died and raised from the dead. This is not something you debate like other philosophies. He is a person. So faith in a person is different than an idea that we can just like whimsically conclude or accept and then go on living our life. Faith exists in real life. This is what James is after. Now, James and Paul seem to be contradicting themselves, which is why the great reformer Martin Luther did not like the book of James. He tried to get it out of the German Bible because he felt it didn't belong in the canon of scriptures, which there's a reason, of course it belongs. There's the process of the, the canonical process for over a couple hundred years Theologians, intellectuals, bishops, the church debated what belonged in what we call our holy scriptures. This is why I love the Christian faith. It's not some guy with some spectacles looking into a top hat. Mormonism. It's fact. Look it up or watch South Park. Um, <laughs> either one is true. <clears throat> It's not some person alone creating doctrine alone in a cave by some inspiration from an angel, which is the Quran. It's several authors over several thousand years, over a long period of time with lots of translations, uh, lots of variations, with, with integrity in the process of collecting, stewarded, stewarded over a period of time to give us what we have. Why is it in there? Well, I'll give you some context, which is what Martin needed. Sorry, the reformer, Martin Luther. He sees what Paul was doing, and that really aligned with what he was, what, what he was coming to the conclusion of. But also, Paul was writing to a different group of people for a specific purpose, dealing with a different enemy in the church. Paul was writing to pagans who uh, came to faith and used their pagan view of following God in their new Christian faith. And they believed that if they could just do the right things, they could get a better position with God. That if they did more good works, more good deeds, then they would be loved more by God. Anyone want to confess this form of paganism? Let's just speak it out. This is the lie of all lies in my life. I had a view of God that was the disapproving father. And if I just performed, if I just did more, if I just did all of the things as better than everyone else, then, the, then I was worth the sacrifice that Jesus made. So you start a church at 23 years old. You serve at Skid Row in downtown LA in MacArthur Park every Saturday as a college student at Vanguard. I was, I was moved with compassion, but I was broken in my identity. I only knew performance. 
It wasn't until I became a dad that I understood how I was worshiping the wrong God. It wasn't until I became a father that I understood that there is no performance in unconditional love. That there is no possible way my boys can be more loved by me based on their behavior. Yeah, I get upset. I lose my temper. But they will never doubt the love that they receive. They might get hurt. They're going to have father wounds, of course. Everyone has them. But not what I had. I learned that there is no such thing as conditional love with God the Father. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love. He gives it to you freely. That is called grace. So we deal with new Christians that take pagan theology and try to make themselves earn their way to God by performance. Paul is going to make sure you know there's nothing you can do to get there. Jesus did it on the cross. It's faith alone, saved by grace. That's what we believe. Are you with me? James has a different enemy. And I think, actually, it's more consistent with Southern California Christianity. Can we talk about it? Are we good? Are you sure? Anyone want to randomly go get some more coffee right now? <clears throat> I see you. The type of Christianity where you've been around for a little bit, and maybe early on you were doing like missions work with YWAM or circuit riders. You know, you put in your dues. You served when you were younger, when you weren't married and didn't have kids. Or you just had the, you know, you had the, the reps in. And then life gets busy, as it does, becomes more complex. There's more responsibilities. There's more things that you have to pay for and uniforms that you have to buy. And there's all sorts of things. And you give. Of course you give. That's what you do. As a, you show up on Sunday. You do your small group. You give. But faith exist in the activity of the Christian circle, not in the everyday ordinary life. This is what he's confronting. A kind of Christianity that says, my bio on my Instagram or Facebook, whatever it is you use, is enough to bear witness. I voted for this candidate. And that represents the Christian view that Jesus would have in the United States of America. <laughs> or I voted for this candidate because it represents the justice God is after for all people everywhere, which is speaking to the kind of Jesus that I see in the scriptures. You see how easy it is just to make Jesus into our own political ideology? That's the Christianity James is attacking a kind of Christianity that is declaring faith as a concept mastered, not as, a, a, as an experience in the everyday ordinary life. Can faith declared save you? Yeah, I think so. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, Romans, then you'll be saved. But James is going after something far more important. Christianity doesn't live in the philosophical world. It lives in the practical world. I'm going to prove that to you. you guys with me? I lost half of you, but it's okay. We're good. James says, 
if your faith doesn't engage in your everyday ordinary life, you have dead faith. He presents a case study for how you know. And here's, I'm going I'm to give you the ending, right? Here's my question for you at the very end. Is your faith dead? How do you know if your faith is alive? That's the question I want you to think about for the next few minutes. You guys good? He presents a case study. Here it is. Now, I I love scripture. I don't like what we can do with it and how oftentimes we, um, we defer responsibility or abdicate responsibility as Christians to concepts rather than practical lived experience. Um, So what we do with scripture is we love the ideas and we keep them in this place of ideas and truth that don't integrate into our life. And we also can think about the words from scripture without thinking about the implications of where it was received and by whom. So when James writes, he's not writing to a large audience on Twitter. He's writing to households. Like, if this is all the Christians we ever knew, we wouldn't be gathering with hundreds. It would be like 20 here, 15 here in households. And so he writes these instructions to people like the first two rows. You guys have to figure out what this means. And so he says, he says in his case study, let me give you an example of the kind of faith he's looking for, contrasting faith that is alive and faith that is dead. Are you guys good? So verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Brother or sister is referring to someone in the community. I know right now it's so easy to dismiss the poverty around us because we like to just say that's Gavin's problem. He created it. Liberal progressive ideology of California has made this problem. Maybe that's true. But when we as Christians pass that off to some other organization, some other thing, we're missing what it means to love God. Can't sing songs or take communion knowing somebody's in need. Most of us don't live with proximity and intentionality in relationship with those that are in need. We just look the same. Might look differently on the outside, but socioeconomically we're the same. I told you this was going to be a fun one. Um, maybe I didn't say that. That was the first service. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, uh, one commentator says, I'm going to pray for you. Is that a better way to say it? Thoughts and prayers. But does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And it's referring to the faith of declaring yourself as a follower of Jesus. What good is that faith? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, faith is connected to everything. It's connected to your social life, your political life, your relational life, your physical life, your spiritual life. It's part of your professional career. It's part of your family. It's integrated into everything. And James is saying, if you have faith in Jesus, you got to own it. Don't be like the Christian that says one thing and does another thing. That claims love for God, but dismisses his brother or sister in the same room. And we're obsessed with this kind of Christianity. We've made it convenient. We've made it easy. Hold me 
for one minute. Let me just say what's going on in Southern California and the Christian world today is we've made it an industry to get famous and platformed and make money off of things. The problem right now is you as a congregation love good teaching. We as Christians love good teaching and we will follow great teachers with great platforms not knowing whether or not they live the lifestyle of Jesus. Those people can sell the truth without living it and no one knows the difference. And if Jesus were here, he would flip the tables of the commerce. In the church, he would challenge the idea that leadership can sell the truth of Jesus without living the way of Jesus. They have to go together. And this is what James is getting at. You as a follower, as an everyday ordinary disciple, you can't possibly just do a quiet devotion without letting that devotion flood your life when you leave that quiet time. It should change the way you interact with your spouse or your roommate. It should change the way you feel about that person as you drive to church. Look, I'm not saying you have to stop every time, but you shouldn't just dismiss it as a problem for the governor or the problem of politics. It should be, Lord, have mercy. Because James is confronting the issue of his days. The church was not full of mercy. They were saying one thing, worshiping one way, and missing the holistic nature of where faith primarily exists. But some of you will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It's like saying um, you, conf- you, you confess the right information, but your life doesn't reveal the transformation that's required. Which is why he says, you believe that there is one God. Oh, that's so good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. They're at least afraid of God. How many of you know demons have good theology? Think about it. Like, okay, just do a case study in the New Testament, the book of Mark. The theme is who is this Jesus? Right, so you're building up eight chapters. In eight chapter, Peter finally confesses you are the son, the Messiah. And Jesus is like, oh, you, you, this was revealed to you by my father. But all along, the only people that get Jesus, you think the religious leaders should get him? No, they don't get him. The disciples should get him? No, they don't get him. The only people Beings that get Jesus are demons. Mark chapter four, Jesus calms the storm, gets peace and quiet. And, the, and then the disciples in the boat, I'm like, oh, crud. Who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. They're like, we did not see that coming. Who is he? The very next chapter, chapter five, they land on the Gentile territory and they're met by a legion of demons, a demon-possessed man who's breaking chains. And he answers the question, Jesus, son of the most high God, don't destroy us. Good theology. Wrong practice. James is even saying, look, demons get God And they're even afraid of God. You're lacking both. You don't even get God, and you're not even afraid of him. Or or you you get that he's one God, but you're not afraid. What he's getting at is you can't possibly confess with your mouth and not live with your life. Are we good? He's saying faith 
for some of you, it's just information. But without transformation, it's pointless. It's dead. Some of you are masters at information in Christianity. You've memorized things. You've read the books. You do the practices. You love your little time with God, but your life is not transformed. I, I have to say, I've been part of the problem in teaching. I'm really coming to this place where I see the problem in the, in the church in the West, Southern California in particular. We are obsessed with our little faith, our little practices, our little Sabbath, our little prayer routines, our little, all the things that make us feel good about doing things for Jesus. And I am for spiritual formation, 100%. But I'm watching these become tools for self-help for so many Christians. The purpose of the disciplines, which we all should do, is union with God, communion, radical transformation. And for so many of us, the disciplines are just ways to distract us from real transformation. How do I know? You do the disciplines, but the fruit of your life is not gentleness, patience, kindness, love, joy. You lose the fruit because the activity is not building the fruit of the Spirit anymore. You're doing it without the presence of God. This is a side note. Let me just say this. Information. How do you know your face alive? Do you love Jesus? I don't mean like, do you like the idea of Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you being wooed by God? When you come to worship, do you bring a catalog of the last week of worship alone in the secret place that God's rewarded as you come together for corporate worship? Or is this the only time you bring your adoration to the Lord? Do you bring your affections to God? Do you bring your love and sacrifice, your thanksgiving, your, your grateful sacrifice to the Lord? Do you love him? How do you know your faith isn't dead? How do you know your faith is alive? Demons have good theology, but it's just information without practice. He goes on, and he's going to give us another illustration of what faith looks like. Because real faith, real, real, alive faith, faith that's real, will produce something inside of you that becomes evident in your life. It will bear fruit. People will say, there's something going on here. There's an apple tree. How do you know? There's an apple on it. Look, an orange tree. How do you know? There's an orange on it. It shouldn't be so hard to tell Christians apart. And I'm not talking about the hats you wear. Can't wait for 2024. It's going to be all about Jesus. It's going to be all about Jesus and any other form of idol that we try to carry in here is going to be freaking burning in our pockets. And we're going to repent because we want Jesus. We want his kingdom. We don't want any other kingdom here. And don't worry, it's going to be both sides equally challenged for the sake of the kingdom of God. Real faith brings 
transformation. He, then he goes on to talk about, I'm going to fast forward this a little bit. I'll summarize. He talks about Abraham considered righteous for offering his son Isaac on the altar. There's this great story that's controversial and challenging. Abraham was promised if he followed God to leave his family and friends to a place he didn't know, he would have a, a, a basically um, a, a lineage, a legacy of, of, of people behind him that will number the stars and number the sand. Promise, he was an old man, he didn't have any kids. And in God's faithfulness, he gave him a son, Isaac. Him and Sarah were super old and they get a son and later on, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. And Abraham goes for it, walks up the mountain, carries the, Isaac carries a stack of wood on his back, sets up the altar, about to sacrifice Isaac because the Lord's word. And God stops him, provides a lamb, and then, then it's, uh, God honors Abraham's faith and obedience. This is the story James gives us. Now, Abraham is the father of the Israel nation, the Israelites. This is a, this is a superhero. This is an Avenger. <clears throat> not just a superhero, like Avenger superhero. Not like your neighborhood friendly. We're talking about like fighting aliens kind of superhero. Do you know what I'm saying? Like going through multi-dimensions, right? Sorry, that's a spoiler. Yeah, um, you've had plenty of time to watch these films. Uh, if you were here when Brian Loretz preached, I love what he said. He's, he, when you read James, he preached through James 5, and he talked about patience in one of the most profound sermons I've heard in a long time when he was here. He said it's like his son, when he was uh, in his room, <clears throat> put up basketball posters of famous professional basketball players. And they were inspiring his son to go after um, you know, being great at basketball. And so when James gives us these examples, these are like posters on our wall. James puts up Abraham. Abraham is this prophetic image of what f real faith looks like. It looks like radical obedience to the word of God. It does, obedience doesn't happen on your couch in your home. It happens when you carry the sacrifice up the mountain for three days, not knowing how he's going to provide, but doing it because he said it. Isn't that amazing? Like, isn't that, that's, that's faith. Now, again, let me just talk about the word faith. I'm going to quote Dallas Willard. I love Dallas. He writes about faith. Check this out. He says, the author of Hebrews wrote, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith born out of experience is the means by which the mind contacts reality. Okay, here's, he's going to make sense of this. <clears throat> if I hope to have light in a dark room, my faith in the light switch leads me over to the light switch, which then I then flip up and I, I have what I hope for, light fills the room. So uh, let me explain Dallas because he's a genius, um, was, <clears throat> is in heaven with Jesus now. I'm probably talking about stuff I don't know. I hope there would be light in this dark room. My, my imagination, contact, like believing in the reality that there's light as a possibility. My faith is me walking to the other side of the room to flip on the light switch. That's faith and hope 
becomes realized. Darkness leaves, light walks into the room. Are you guys good? You see what he's getting at? Faith is not some idea. It's lived. It's lived out. And so Abraham becomes a model for that, where um, I love what it says in verse 22, chapter 2. It says, um, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. There's that word complete, which we've talked about already a couple of times. That word is perfect. His faith was made perfect, whole, congruent. This is the whole book of James, that your beliefs impact the way you behave, that the way you uh, see reality is Jesus Lord. It impacts how you live. Can we talk about this a little bit? How do you know your faith is alive? Fruit. Where will you find fruit? Stay with me. I love the literalism there. That was great. Um, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I got baptized. I said the prayer. James is saying, you will know that you are a little Christ, a follower of Jesus, through the evidence expressed in your lifestyle. How do you know that Jesus is Lord of your life? Well, Let's look at your finances. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's keep this spiritual. Exactly. Exactly. James is saying, if you are doing an audit of your finances, your finances will scream, Jesus is Lord. If you are doing, to do an audit of your calendar, the way you manage and steward your time will reflect the reality that Jesus is raised from the dead. How you treat your spouse or your roommate or your coworker, the fruit of that relationship will bear witness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know your, fruit is, your, your faith is alive? What you do with your body, the daily decisions to rest, to not live beyond your limitations and limits, to not over-consume with food when you feel depressed or under-consume to attain an unimaginable image that has given to us by demonic culture reflects your view of Jesus being Lord or not. Are we okay? You see, this is where, so it's like this idea of faith we want to keep here on Sunday. James is like, no, 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 no. How it impacts you living as a mini mobile temple with your body is where this goes. With your money, with your time, with your energy, with your relationships, with your parenting, with your kids, with your business, with all, how you drive will declare Jesus is Lord or not. Imagine that. Where there could be no argument against the risen Lord Jesus Christ because we lived like little Jesuses everywhere we went. That's the plan. By the way, that's the greatest commandment. Love God, love others as you love yourself. Some of you are really good at loving others. Don't love yourself. Oh, no, I totally love myself. I'll have time to sleep later. 
I'll eat healthy when I have time. See, they're all integrated together. I see it in my head, a diagram. It's perfect. It's great. Here you go. I'll send it to you later. I'm going to hit on this one more, one more time from Dallas. He says this. I love this. Faith is not a mystery. We experience it day in and day out. It, in its most basic aspect, faith is simply reliance upon something in both attitude and action. It may or may not involve reliance upon God. I have faith in my car. Even though I'm not driving it at the moment, this frees me from worrying about how I'm going to get home later. If I did not have faith in my car, I would have trouble concentrating on what I'm doing, wondering how am I going to get home. I would probably stop and give someone a call to see if they could come and pick me up. My attitude, concerned to get home, would affect my action, making the call. Again, faith is reliance or trust and confidence revealed in attitude and action. You see what he's saying? Like if, if you're, think about this. If Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead and you believe that, it impacts your attitude, how you feel about circumstances in the moment. Do you have trust in God's raising from the dead and confidence and what he's illustrating here is that if you have faith that your car is going to get you home, then it impacts how you engage in that moment. If you're worried, I don't have a car. I'm not going to be able to go to the, to go surf after this. I don't have a surfboard. I'm going to be worried about and preoccupied about getting that surfboard and getting that car to that place. And it's going to direct my attitude to worry. And it's going to direct my actions to borrow, call, and make sure I get a ride and make sure I get a surfboard to go surf. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Faith lives itself, it lives in your attitude and action in everyday life. Now, I just got to remind you, we're not saved by works. We're saved for works. You're like, awesome. Abraham, great illustration. Father of the nation, great faithful guy, you know, got a child in his old age. He's kind of a big deal. But you don't realize, Darren, that like to have that guy as a poster on, you know, on my wall is like having LeBron James, you know, on my wall as a basketball player. It's just absolutely unattainable for some of you. For some of us, we're close. Um, (laughs) Not even close. You don't understand my addiction. You understand the trauma that I had to go through as a child to even get to this point. And, you know, examples like Abraham or even you talking about your faith, that's just so far away from me. I'm not even close to the standard. That's why James gives you another illustration. He says, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So Rahab's in another part of the Bible where you have this woman who was a prostitute in Jericho and the spies come in and they're scouting out the area and they have to flee and she lets them into her place and sends them off and saves them. Now, does it say she repented of her prostitution? No. Does it say she did 180 degrees different direction? No. She saw God was doing something here. She had been living over here with the wrong people, the wrong gods, and she just took a little bit of a turn in the right direction, and with her life, it's called righteousness. So it doesn't matter how good you think you are. Just just turn, just a little bit. Are you with me? 
So whether it's Abraham or Rahab, we have posters on our wall for what's possible to have living faith. To live out this thing called Christianity. Because God is the one who brings the power to change. God is the one that produces the capacity for transformation. And he says at the end, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He's talking about faith. What, how does it get alive? It gets alive through Jesus. I love what Paul says. I'll just close with this and ask you the same question I asked in the beginning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. I think we need an amen on that. Let me say it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's poem. Poema is the word. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You aren't saved by works. You're saved for works. And to the church, Jesus wants to work through you. So he's calling you to live in obedience to what you confess. He's not saying you got to do these things to earn more favor, to earn my love, or to earn salvation. You're saved by grace. But faith requires action. Faith requires you to live obedient. Faith requires you to follow Jesus into the world. So the question is, is your faith alive or is it dead? And how will you know? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.